So, good to be here again. Although, as I was preparing this, I was also sending it's a little bit poignant because I'm going to the US on Monday and I'll be there until Christmas Eve if all goes to plan. So, this is my last session with you for this year. Seems like a long time. Yeah, so I was aware that there was a tinge of dukkha unsatisfactoriness, which in some ways is perfect, because that's actually what we're going to be continuing exploring tonight. But you are coming on Sunday, right? I'm coming on Sunday to the <laughs> workshop, so, but just in terms of our Thursday nights, this is my last Thursday night for a while. So I wanted to continue with the theme that we started a few weeks ago, <coughs> which is taking refuge in the Dharma remembering that Dharma is one of those Pali words that has a lot of different meanings. So it can mean reality, the truth of how things are. So the truth of how things are, as is distinct from our delusion of how we'd like them to be, our wishful thinking of the way we would prefer things to be. So that's one set of meanings. And the other is... Dharma as the Buddha's teachings, those teachings which in various ways they're showing us how to live in alignment with reality on deeper and deeper <coughs> levels. And somebody, some of you might already be wondering well, why would we want to do that? Because <laughs> one of the reasons is because not living in alignment with reality is actually stressful even painful. As we explore this path, we start to recognize how it takes a lot of energy to keep fighting reality, to try to live in denial, to live in contention with how life actually is. And conversely, living in harmony with reality is easeful, is peaceful, is freeing. So that's just, if you like, another way of framing the overall purpose of what we're doing here. So taking refuge in the Dharma in this context means diving more deeply into the Buddha's teachings so that we can free ourselves from delusion, so that we can suffer less, live with more calm, with more kindness, with more clarity, not only for our own benefit, but for everyone around us too. So this is why we're exploring taking refuge in the Dharma. <coughs> As I'm sure you all know, this is a vast topic. So when I was here, I gave the intro, I tried to make it a little bit more manageable by just focusing on two sets of core teachings. The teaching of the Four Noble Truths and the Four Heart Qualities that are known as the Brahma Vihara. So those are kindness, compassion, appreciative joy and equanimity. Now just to acknowledge in the classical teachings those two sets of four aren't directly paired with each other as far as I know but in the explorations that I've been doing I felt like they can provide a helpful balancing out of each other. So you could say the four noble truths are the wisdom teachings that help us to see clearly the truth of how things are, and the truth of how life is. And then the four Brahma Vihara, they strengthen our inner 
resources. They strengthen the heart qualities so that we can meet that reality with some degree of ease and openness and balance. Because as I think everyone here knows, reality isn't always how we would like it to be. So there's a well-known saying that's attributed to Gloria Steinem, but it appears, although it appears to have been around a few years before she popularized it, and that saying is, the truth will set you free, but first it will piss you off. <laughs> Maybe you recognize, some of you recognize that. It's just a very pithy way of acknowledging that it's not always easy to face up to reality. And it's a good way of acknowledging there are reasons why all of us have developed strategies for trying to ward it off at times, try to stay comfortable in our delusions. Because if we don't have the necessary inner resources, at times reality can feel harsh, painful, even cruel. So I think I mentioned a few months ago, a friend of mine told me that she had uh, heard someone talk about Dharma operating as both confrontation and consolation. And that's just another way of framing these two. I think it comes from Christian theology, but it gives us a sense of how we could say the Four Noble Truths act as a confrontation to wake us up from our delusion. And the four Brahma-Viharas, the heart qualities, they offer some consolation. So the more fully we learn to live in alignment with reality, we can experience how that confrontation is necessary so that we can access the consolation of the ease, the release, the peace. So those are all aspects of living a healthy and a sane life. And in fact, the Buddha himself saw what he was doing as a form of healing. <clears throat> so he was trying to heal not just physical ailments, but our existential disease, our existential dis-ease. And so when he presented the Four Noble Truths, as some of you know, he followed a medical model that was common in his day. So the first step was to diagnose or identify what is the illness. The second step to recognize what was causing it. The third step to work out a cure. And then the fourth step to give a prescription. So because that was his orientation, the Dharma is not intended to be a philosophical theory about the world. It's not mystical speculation about the nature of ultimate reality. The Buddha is reported to have said, all I teach is suffering and the end of suffering. So, right there, let's just pause and see if there might be any little tweaks of reaction as I'm talking a lot about suffering, this word suffering. Because I don't know about for you, but for me, I would hear these talks, and I would just have this instinctive... Ugh, Oh, pulling back, shrinking, a little bit tightening, slight bracing or contraction. Can I just ask a question? Did you say that he talked about 
suffering and the end of suffering. Yes, suffering and the end of suffering. Thank you for pointing that out. You're ahead of the program here. (laughs) Normally, what we hear is just the suffering piece. And then there can be this little bit of, oh, maybe shutting down or irritation or starting to mentally argue with what's being said, maybe tuning out. Maybe some of you aren't even hearing it. Maybe you're thinking about what TV series you're going to watch when you get home. I'm pointing to that because all of us have micro-reactions that if we don't see them, go into bigger movements of the heart and mind unconscious reactivity that we all know from our own experience it may short term distract us from the dukkha but in the longer term it doesn't help us to develop the inner resources that would allow us to meet suffering more skillfully so this word suffering just to say it tends to bring up different reactions for people so I want to unpack a little bit more what was the Buddha pointing to here And how is it relevant for every one of us, every human who's ever been born? Because again, in my own experience, when I would hear particularly the first noble truth, which is just a very bold, simple statement, there is suffering. That's how it's usually translated. I'd think, yeah, well, you know, my life isn't perfect, but I wouldn't say I'm suffering. Because to me, suffering was some big anguish. But the Pali word that's usually translated as suffering is dukkha, and it actually covers a whole spectrum of experiences. At one end, there is extreme anguish, but it goes all the way through to just that slight sense of something not being quite right, could be better, could be different. And that's a little bit what I was pointing to in the meditation earlier when I asked you to notice, you know, is there some sense of trying to maybe get a little bit more comfortable or get a little bit less thinking agitation or a little bit more calm. You know, even in meditation, we're sort of bringing in different ways of trying to control and manipulate experience. All of those are to somehow defend against dukkha. So what the Buddha is pointing to is just that dukkha is a fundamental fact of life. And he begins by defining it in physical terms, the stress from having a body. So being born starts right there. Being born is painful, distressing, suffering, getting sick. And we all know, at least on an intellectual level, this body is of the nature to age and to die. Every single one of us in this room is subject to that truth. And then the Buddha goes on to name all the mental stress and distress that all of us at times experience. So he names grief and lamentation and mental pain and despair. And often that comes from having to be with experiences or with people that we don't like, don't want to be around, don't want to have to deal with. Or the opposite, it comes from being separated from people that we do want to be with, from experiences that we do want to have. So the sutta described it as association with the loathed is suffering. And dissociation from the loved is suffering. So we've got the loved and the loathed. 
And then the Buddha summarizes it all as just not getting what we want. Which always makes me think of that Rolling Stones song, and I'm not going to sing it because I don't want to plant that in your mind. But, you know, I think it's fair to say every one of us here has experienced, or maybe right now is experiencing, one or more of these forms of dukkha. But I don't want to assume, so I like to check. Is that true? Is anybody here not experiencing any dissatisfaction whatsoever? It might, it might be, you know, just for a moment. Just like to say, it's nobody but I'm alone here. <laughs> Thank you for clarifying. Thank you, Sue. So there's nobody you loathe here. Okay, so at least I'm not alone. <laughs> So, so it's good. We, we can check that one off the list for now. That's not your particular dukkha tonight. But even if right now you feel like things are going pretty well, you're feeling okay, spoiler alert, it's going to change. And if you look more closely, you can always find something somewhere that's just not quite right. So again, in the discourses, it includes those subtle underlying feelings of discomfort, of not enoughness, of that underlying sense of, is this it? What's next? What else? So there's that basic unease, fundamental dissatisfaction. And the Buddha was pointing to this even by using the word dukkha because apparently, etymologically, that word comes from a term that referred to the axle hole of a wooden wheel. So those wooden carts that had solid wooden wheels with a square hole and then the axle doesn't quite fit. And what do you get? A really bumpy ride. <laughs> so this is where the term dukkha comes from and it just suggests that basic kind of uh, friction of life. And so the Buddha talked a lot about this, and it wasn't just rubbing our noses in it for the sake of it. My sense is that he was trying to highlight two really key aspects of dukkha that we normally don't notice. One is that it's universal. Every human being alive experiences dukkha to varying degrees at different times in our lives. And the second aspect is that it's impersonal. Mostly it's not our fault. And this is very different from our usual, maybe unconscious ways that we relate to dukkha, which usually we take it personally. We tend to think it's a sign of failure, that we've done something wrong, or there's something inherently wrong with us. And so often when we do contact dukkha, we tend to contract, close down, withdraw, sometimes even retreat into shame, which of course only makes the whole experience worse. And the second understanding that dukkha is impersonal, it arises due to causes and conditions. It's much harder for people to understand that because we have this delusion that we are or should be in complete control of every aspect of our life. But we're not. Otherwise, dukkha wouldn't happen. So dukkha reveals that we're not in control. 
And this is really hard to accept. So most of the time we develop all kinds of strategies for ignoring, avoiding, denying dukkha because it undermines that core belief that we're in control. So we tend to have some thought, well, if I can just do X, then I'll be okay. If I can just get more Y, then I'll be okay. If I can only achieve Z, then I'll definitely be okay. Anyone recognize that? There's something yeah. that uh, it, I'll just, if I just, if I, I can only, if I only, if I, uh, all of these strategies. Um, not surprisingly, we bring this to our meditation too. In fact, many people come to meditation with some hope that it's going to save us. If I just meditate long enough, or hard enough or deep enough if I just go on enough retreats if I just find the right teacher if I just study these teachings in more and more depth then I'll be okay then I'll live happily ever after yes <laughs> and even there this first noble truth there is dukkha this practice is not about escaping it finding that metaphorical eject button that goes and press it and boom, we're on this pink cloud of nibbana and we live happily ever after. If we're really paying attention to the teachings we're seeing, the Buddha's asking us to look more closely, more carefully at our relationship to Dukkha. So I think you heard a few talks about the Four Noble Truths. You might remember each of them has a task associated with it. And the task of the first noble truth, does anybody remember? Understand it, yeah. Dukkha is to be understood. So fully understanding dukkha, we see it's a universal fact of life when we stop taking it quite so personally. And when we can do that, the natural response is kindness, metta. We understand that we're all in this together. None of us are exempt. And so now, I'm, now we're coming to what I'm framing as the consolation aspect of the Dharma. So this heart quality of kindness, metta. And there's a two-way relationship between dukkha and metta because Metta is the natural response to dukkha when we're seeing clearly. But, and, for all of us there are times when the intensity of the dukkha undermines our capacity to see clearly. And we get overwhelmed by suffering. So at those times, we can turn to the resource of metta, of kindness, to help us develop the inner strength and the resilience so that we can turn towards what's difficult without getting flattened by it. And actually it's not only when we're facing dukkha, I highly recommend that we develop metta now because we never know when we're going to need it. And if we don't start until we're in some kind of crisis, it's much harder. And I was thinking about this the other day, I may have mentioned, you know, a few years ago when I came back and my parents were elderly and there was a lot of difficult stuff going on for them. And I just saw how they had no resources to deal with it. Mm -hmm. And watching them try to navigate all these different crises that were coming from 
all different quarters. It was kind of like watching two people in a little boat that had no sail, no anchor, no rudder, no motor, no shelter, and they're just tossed about. And it, for me, although it was painful, it was also a powerful kind of, in a way, wake-up call that we need to get these inequalities now because we never know. And certainly as we're aging, different things, I don't need to tell some of you that, different things come in that are difficult. They didn't have meta, they didn't have clarity, they didn't have any understanding. They were just really at the mercy of these difficult situations and they couldn't make sense of them. They just I watched them just keep going into denial and, and delusion because they just didn't have the capacity to be with their reality. As I, this was my perspective. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does make sense, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And they're not alone in that. You know, most people, or many people, have a tendency to just avoid, ignore, deny until it's right there and can't do it anymore. But then, as a you're suffering because you're seeing their struggle. I'm suffering because they're seeing their struggle? I would. Yeah, yeah, there was some, yeah. I have yeah. a couple of friends that are really struggling, and I'm like, go see a therapist, this, this, this. and they said, no, I don't take time, but I'm getting all the... <laughs> yes, yeah, this is, a, yeah, this is part of the dilemma, I think. It can be painful when we feel like we can see clearly how things could be different, but because of people's delusion, they don't necessarily get it. And so, coming back to Brahma-Vihara, that's a very powerful place to develop equanimity, the fourth of them, to care and not to care, to do what we can, but accept as best we can when we can't change in difficult circumstances. So I'll just loop back a little bit now to Metta, because I know some of you just come from a Metta retreat with Sister Viranyani at Temuata. So maybe when we come to the discussion we can hear a little more about that. But not all of you here are familiar with Metta practice, I think. So it's a way of cultivating the quality of kindness, goodwill, friendliness. And traditionally, we do it by silently reciting phrases such as, may I be safe, may I be healthy, may I be happy, may I be at ease, and so forth. And we silently do that, offering those phrases first to ourselves, then to someone who's been good to us, a benefactor, then to a good friend, then to a neutral person, then to a so-called difficult person, and then to all beings everywhere. So the idea is we start with where this heart quality of kindness comes most naturally, and then we train in expanding that capacity, ultimately to include all beings. So that's the traditional way of doing it. And just to acknowledge for many people, it can be difficult, feel a little wordy or dry or mechanical. So I really like to encourage people to be creative with how they approach this practice. I feel like with the Brahma Vihara, all of them, it's 
I don't think it's possible to accidentally develop too much kindness. I'd like to be proved wrong in a way, but kindness always includes ourselves. So sometimes people say, well, is it going to make me into a doormat and everyone will walk over me? That's not true metta if you're being taken advantage of. So metta starts with ourselves as a protection against Mm -hmm. that possibility. So I think that gives us freedom to really do it in daily life in whatever way makes sense to us. Even in the supermarket, whoever crosses your path, the mother with the screaming toddler or the frazzled store manager or the elderly lady who's dropping her shopping, you know, there's so many opportunities to practice kindness. Mm-hmm. We can also practice tuning our radar to notice kindness that comes our way that's happening all through the day that often we don't even register the person who lets you in in the car instead of cutting you off or the person who picks up your shopping when you've dropped it or there's so many um, different forms of kindness that are available to us if we just tune our meta antenna and when we're more connected to the kindness that's all around us it's much easier to trust and to some extent let go of that compulsive need to control and again this works both ways the more we can give up some of that effort to change everything out there the more energy we have to change internally our hearts and minds to soften the resistance and to relax a little more fully into just being with how it is So again, just to highlight, to reiterate, this metta is not about becoming a passive kind of doormat. Oh, everything's fine. It's not about trying to manufacture an emotion. In fact, in the suttas, one translation of the term metta is simply non-ill will. I don't tend to use the term loving-kindness, which is the usual translation of metta, because it can sound like some big, fluffy emotion. But in the suttas, it's as simple as just not having aversion. And I think that hopefully makes that a much more accessible starting point. It sounds simple, but it's not easy. When I was in the U.S. last month, one of my teacher friends has a Zen background, and she introduced a koan into the uh, course we were teaching, and that koan is simply, thank you, I have no complaints whatsoever. (laughs) Thank you, I have no complaints whatsoever. So you might play with that as a koan next time you feel that energy of grumbling or resisting or not wanting or... Thank you. I have no complaints whatsoever. So for me, it's an invitation to soften, to open, to widen, to include all of it. The wanted, the unwanted, just making space so that we can see more clearly how we might respond to the different challenges that all of us are facing, not only in our own lives, but collectively. So, very big, obvious example, the climate crisis. Dukkha doesn't get much bigger than that. And if we don't have any training in understanding the Four Noble Truths, 
or any training in the inner resources of metta and compassion, appreciation and equanimity, like most people, the tendencies just get me away from it. But all of us here, we're fortunate that we are developing the inner resources that can help us to make space for the grief, for the rage, for the despair. We have a better chance of allowing those things to move through us and not to get stuck. And then there's more possibility for clarity, for openness, for energy, so that we can take appropriate action whatever is appropriate for us in our particular circumstances. So in a way this brings us full circle back to where we started with the acknowledgement that everything we're doing here is not just for our own benefit, but for all beings everywhere. So it's fast. And this might be a good place just to stop so that we have some time left for discussion. So... Thank you for your attention. I'll leave it there for now. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.